How should we be managing the sharply dropping tiers at some positions? I'll ask Gene McCaffrey next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 14th. It's show number five of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll have a feature interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy, and a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic, discussing his series at the site, analyzing the fantasy outlooks for the hitters in our drafts, plus his boons and banes, and they're in a whole new structure. It's another big Tuesday Tout edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The wise guy is in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout edition, part one of our feature expert interview with the wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. How about yourself? How many drafts are you playing this season? Uh, I have only done two so far, and I'm only going to do one more. I think the main event. Maybe I'll do a best ball or something. Um, but I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it light this year, trying to trying to concentrate on what I have as opposed to spreading myself too thin. Are you playing in any of the experts leagues? Just the uh, the great fantasy baseball invitational, which is one of the drafts I've already done, which just finished. So it's the slowest slow draft of all time. Yeah, but but, uh, but I just finished that. I was reasonably happy with the result. Uh, where did you draft from, and uh, how did the first part of your draft go? Uh, well, I drafted first. Oh, um, and so it went rather well. I thought I was. I'm kind of, uh, I like to draft first, as a general manner of speaking. Some years I more than others, but this year I'm, I was content with it, so, so no real problems. Who'd you take with the first overall? You know, it's funny because I recommended taking Julio Rodriguez with the first pick, but I, when it actually came to, uh, push came to shove, I took Aaron Judge. You know, I was in a draft just the other day, it's a NFBC format draft, and I was picking fourth, and the guy who was picking first really surprised the room. He took Jose Ramirez. Not that Jose Ramirez isn't a good ball player, but I think what he was concerned about was the possibility that he would get absolutely shut out of all the good third basemen because there's so few of them, which we'll talk about, I think, in a, a little bit later. And so he kind of did without whatever he might have uh, got extra from drafting the more usual suspects, Acuna or Rodriguez and uh, decided to go with the third baseman first. I don't know. Do you think that the strategy makes sense? And again, we'll talk more about third baseman in, uh, a little later. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's a, a reasonable way to go. Um, one thing I would say, though, is always, it seems to me, that when a position looks extremely thin, that's not the way it plays out in a regular season. Um, but I think with, with Ramirez, what he's doing is he's, he's it's a safety pick. There's nothing wrong with that in the first round. Yeah, and I, I I kind of thought about it after the draft was over, and I looked at how it actually went, and sure enough, uh, Machado, 
Austin Riley, Arenado, they all went before that first pick guy got his second pick at the tail end of round two. And he really would have been stuck for thir- for a third baseman. He'd have to start digging around in the sort of Gunnar Henderson range. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but then you fall into the trap where you're starting to promote guys ahead of where they really are valued just because you're starting to get worried that you're going to be stuck getting somebody even da- farther down later on. And uh, the same thing happened in this league anyway with catchers. What have you noticed about that? Uh, yes. Well, I think it's really important this year to get in on at least one, and I think preferably two good catchers because the draft is basically giving it to you. So, um, not at a cheap price, but at a reasonable price. And, uh, there are, you know, six or seven catchers this year who are clearly in, in, in a tier of their own guys who are going to be DHing or playing the field. And, uh, I think it's so, I think it's important that you get one of those guys, uh, I did get stuck, in, kind of stuck at third base, but I'm not. But I was not crying about it because I have a guy who I who I really like, and Josh Rojas, um, which doesn't seem to be a very popular opinion. But um, but you know, when you pick first, it, it's a question of um, sometimes uh, you know you'll get a couple of gifts, maybe um, you play catch up. Um, but you do get to make your picks of pairs, and uh, and I like that. Well, talking about catchers, uh, you had a series of articles at The Athletic going through all of the hitters position by position, and, uh, of course, we might as well start behind the plate at position number two. And in that article about catchers, you said that paying up this year is a really good bet. Uh, how come? Well, I mean, catchers, of course, are more injury-prone than other players, but this year there were those six or seven guys who were clearly above the rest, guys who were going to DH or play the field or both. And, I mean, and that's a big edge. So they can, their runs in RBIs are going to be more comparable to uh, to regular players. And as long as they're available, you know, by, say, the, the 10th round, the 9th round, um, I think there's something to be gained by, by having two good catchers. Not that there won't be a couple of, uh, there probably will, there always are a couple of catchers who kind of come out of nowhere and, and compete with the big guys. Um, but there are so many of them this year. I think that you don't want to, you certainly don't want to have to scrounge for two, you know, lousy catchers at the end. I think they put up at a big disadvantage to that. You said uh, JT Real Muto has enough speed to make him a five-category contributor, but not enough speed to justify a third-round pick. He's been going second, third round in a lot of drafts that I've seen, so what are we missing about JT Real Muto? Well, he's just not good enough in any of the five categories to, to justify that kind of pick. I mean, it's nice to score. It's great for a catcher to score 75 runs. But as I say, there's probably five or six guys who are going to compete with him in that this year. Um, same thing with power. He's got decent power. He's got a good batting average. He's a hell of a player. Um, but he's just not that good a roto player. And especially this year when there are guys who are, who are going to compete with him in several of the, uh, of the five guys. You wrote that uh, residual doubt is all that keeps you from ranking Adley Rutschman as the number one catcher. What did you mean by residual doubt? I mean that 
so many catchers have come up and been good and then flopped on the when just when we expected them to do something. Um, I don't really believe it in the case of Rutschman because because he's too good. Um, I think that he's uh, you know speaking of real Muno scoring seventy five runs, Rutschman scored seventy runs in one hundred and thirteen games. Um, that's mighty impressive to me for a catcher. Um, he has a little trouble with lefties, but he's a really good hitter against righties, and uh, a lot more righties. So uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Rutschman was was the clear number one catcher next year. Uh, I, you could say that about several other guys too, though. In fairness, like who? Well, the Contreras brothers, uh, Alejandro Kirk has a chance to be a superstar. Um, even Rio Muto. Uh, but I don't think it'll happen with Barsho, but it's possible. Um, so Salvador Perez, there he is. You know, I mean, he had 48 home runs. Will Smith is, might be the best hitter of the bunch. So there's plenty. Of, uh, I love Tyler Stevenson, the guy that really moved up my board. Um, I like Sean Murphy, too. I just worry a little bit about his playing time. But, so there's no lack of candidates. There's not. Uh, you also mentioned further down the list, Miami catcher Nick Fortes, you said, has a chance to beat many number two catchers. What do you like about Fortes? What has he got in his favor? Well, he's got a little power. He's got a little speed. It looked like, and it's hard to say for sure with Florida, but with Miami, rather, but it looked like he won the job. And he even had a better defensive numbers than, uh, than Stallings, who's competition on a high bar. Uh, he's got a little power and speed. He's done better in the majors than he did in the minors, which I don't know how we want to interpret that, but uh, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, when I say he's going to beat number two catchers, I think that that's much more true in, in NL leagues. Um, but he, an outside shot, you know, he's a guy that if you get stuck with at the end, um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too sad if the, uh, you know, because he does have some power and speed, so I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I am too. He's somebody that I've been targeting in drafts all uh, in all the drafts that I've been participating in so far, and uh, the news doesn't seem to be out. Gene, it looks like you can still get him at a reasonably low price uh, towards the end of the draft. Uh, a lot of people seem to regard him as a stopgap sort of measure if you're trying to pick your second catcher and, you know, Christian Betancourt is already taken. Yeah, might as well throw a dart at this uh, Nick Fortis, but I think he's probably a little better than people realize. I do too. Uh, he has shown, you know, he's shown it in the major leagues. Again, you have to worry about catchers coming up because their defensive responsibilities are great and they're the priority with the teams. So that's why I think that's the main reason I think why catchers do that, why they come up, show something and flop. But I think that he's uh, he's got a chance to to you know carve out his own niche. Moving on to your series on first baseman, you put Matt Olson in a tie with Pete Alonso for third among first basemen behind uh, Vladdy Jr. and Freddie Freeman, of course. And you talked about Olsen as an example of, and I'm quoting here, the pattern for high strikeout, high fly ball hitters. What is the pattern and how should we apply it to assessing our players? Well, the pattern is that they blow hot and cold. 
fiercely hot and fiercely cold often. Um, and he's Olsen has been has been like that on a season by season basis. It's not a hundred and sixty two game thing. It's just a, a a question of when these hitters lock in, they really lock in and they can do it for a long time. And what usually happens is they have one extra period of streak or slump in the season or an extra long period of streak or slump in the season. And it just happens to play out that, that, that that's what the pattern looks like. And Olsen uh, is due for a good one. Yeah. And by the way, and by the, way um, the gambler's fallacy, if you were going to raise that, I don't know if you were. Yes, I was. Uh, I, I don't think it applies here. Because we're talking about human beings, and we're talking about people who uh, we're not flipping coins. Um, these are specific skills that people have, and there are good reasons for them to be really better or really worse, beginning with health. But there are other things too. I mean, the the complexity of the of the swing uh, is. You've heard the expression. You've used the expression when these guys lock in, and that's what they do. They lock in. And once you've demonstrated that ability, you're going to continue to demonstrate that ability. You own that skill, as it were, until such time as you decline. So I don't think the gambler's fallacy applies to the baseball players in this in these particular cases. Anyway. Well, Gene, what I was thinking maybe the gambler's fallacy isn't quite what I was thinking of, but when you talk about a, a player who's high strikeout, high fly ball, and you say the pattern is slumps and and booms and there's really uh, I've talked about this with other people in the past there's no way to predict when either of those things is going to happen and there's no way to predict the length of either of those things when they're happening and that's what concerns me about using the pattern and expecting on a year-to-year basis that something is something that went poorly last year is going to go better this year because in both of the years, in all of the years, a guy like Matt Olson has the same skills, as you mentioned. He has a lot of strikeouts, and he has a, uh, a pretty good fly ball tilt, and when he's hitting the ball hard, he's going to get home runs. But I don't know that, to use one of your favorite terms, I don't know if it's bettable to say that because a guy like Olson in the pattern had a poor year in year one, that he's destined to have a better year in year two? Well, destined, and, uh, I mean, I don't want to be absolutist about it. It doesn't come in every time. But I've been doing this for a long time, and it's been right a whole lot more than it's been wrong. So that's why I'm sticking to my guns here. Um, and we'll see. You know, I mean, we, we should actually talk about these things next year. You know, see, you know, were you right, McCaffrey? Um, let's see, because there are guys on the downside of this too. Um, guys who should be worse this year than they were last year. We'll get to them later. You mentioned my favorite first baseman this year, as he is in many years, Jose Abreu. And you said his power outage in 2022, he only had 15 homers and 75 RBIs, albeit with a 304 average. And you said Abreu had an obvious explanation for this power outage. So what is the explanation? Does it explain that he's going to do better this year? And where does he fit in generally among uh, 2023 first basemen? Well, I like him a lot. Uh, the obvious explanation is that he's 
tied for the major league lead in long fly ball outs. Um, that seems to me to just be a, a, a variant of luck. And he also had 40 doubles, so you can't say that he, that it was a real power outage. Um, the RBIs were a function of the lineup that he was hitting, which was bad. And this year, he's batting behind a ton of on-base percentage. So I think he's a great bet to rebound. I don't think he's low. I mean, there is that there. But there is, you know, there is no real sign that he's declined as a hitter, I don't think. So, yeah, I have him right behind Goldschmidt. Yeah, that's about where I had him too. And he seems to be falling maybe two, three rounds below that level. And from that point of view, he looks like a real bargain. And I'm surprised, especially if he can repeat the 300 batting average. Gosh, what a help that is, given the amount of plate appearances that he's likely to wrap up. Yeah, I mean, I got him at the, in the PGFBI in the beginning of the seventh round, and I thought that was kind of a steal. I think it is a steal, too. Uh, you suggest that as a three-true-outcomes guy, Boston first baseman Tristan Cassis poses a batting average worry for his fantasy managers, but right away you also point out that there are sound reasons to reduce the worry about Tristan Cassis a little. Why shouldn't Cassis be a batting average worry? Uh, well, for starters, he's got Fenway, um, and it's a good batting average part for left-handed hitters. Um, and his strikeouts aren't too bad. I mean, he does strike out a lot, but what was it, 24.5%, I think is it's manageable, and it's something that can be approved, something to work with. And I think he's got a chance to uh, add, of course, the no shifting. So I think that without, a, you know, I don't expect miracles from his batting average, but I think something in the, in the realm of, you know, act to respectable is not an unrealistic expectation. Moving along, we'll go back to third baseman. We talked a bit about it in the context of Jose Ramirez, but you discussed Baltimore third baseman Gunnar Henderson. Of course, we know he had a pretty exciting debut last year, including a two sixty batting average, which, you know, both of us are old enough to remember when a two sixty batting average was borderline, but now it puts him sort of solidly in the upper middle class. But your take on Gunnar Henderson is that you fear for his continued success on the batting average side. Uh, how come? Well, because he finished slowly. I, uh, yeah, he finished 6-42 with 18 strikeouts. Um, now, I don't think that that's the end of the story. Uh, one thing that he did, which was fantastic, which was his top 3% in not swing at balls, which is great, and it's especially great in a rookie. But I think I watched him a lot, and what was happening at the end was he was letting the pitchers get ahead of him, and that's bad. That's bad policy. So that's where that battle stands. I'm not particularly worried about his on-base percentage because he does take walks. Um, we'll see about his average. And, of course, he's got legit power and legit speed. So, I, I, you know, overall, I'm optimistic about him. i just a little careful on the, on the batting average. Let's see, where that, let's see how the battle falls for this year. You said uh, Alex Bregman, going back to Houston, is not a foundational player, your terms. A fine hitter last year, 23 homers, 93 runs, 93 RBIs. And as you mentioned when we were talking about Abreu, this is a really productive batting order, and he's right in the middle of it. And it might even be better than it was last season uh, with 
Abreu taking uh, Yuli Gurriel's spot, among other changes. What's not to like about Alex Bregman? Well, it's not that I don't like him. I do like him. Um, I would put it this way, that if he's your third best hitter, you should have some really good pitching. Uh, because his batting average is neutral, and he doesn't steal any bases. I mean, he's a fine hitter. I'm not knocking him at all. Um, and he, he could work as a as a number three batter, and that's what I, I consider my foundation, my top three hitters. Um, I guess he's borderline, but um, I just worry with the you know 23, 23 home runs instead of thirty three home runs. That, um, I, I take your point about the about the lineup. I think that he's probably a good bet to at least score a hundred runs this year. So uh, you know it, it, where he's going is about right. I think, but I, if he's your third best hitter, I think that you should have at least you should have some pitching in the pocket. You mentioned Arizona third baseman Josh Rojas earlier, talking about his potential and. You said in the article that you understand why fantasy managers expect his batting average to spike upwards, but you said you're not so sure that's going to happen. Uh, why not? Oh, well, I, no, I do expect his batting average to, to spike. Um, and the reason for that is because he's uh, 5% fewer strikeouts, 5% more hard hits. Um, another thing that you and I have talked about over the years is your pop-ups. And in his career, he's 4.2% compared to the major league average of 10%. So I think that sets him up for a, a, a batting average spike, which is the gateway, of course, to his other cats. Um, so I, I do like him. Um, what I said about the the batting average, uh, batting average, every, people are expecting a batting average spike over all of major league baseball this year. And that, I while I do expect it to happen, I don't expect it to be extreme because, and, you know, the, the obvious reason is the shift, but a couple of reasons. There were some players who benefited from the shift over the, over the years. Also, despite the fact that there's no shifting, there's still going to be a second baseman or a shortstop basically playing up the middle. So that aspect of the shift is really not going to go away. So whereas the major league batting average last year was 243, I expect it to be more like 245, 246 this year rather than getting back over 250. We'll see, of course, but that's my thinking. And of course, we can't expect that the increase is going to be evenly spread across all hitters. It's not like they're all going to go up a point or a point and a half or whatever the average would have to be to make all of that work out. The, it seems to me that the obvious beneficiaries are going to be the guys who suffered greatly from uh, from being shifted, and that's left-handed ground ball hitters. And, I mean, they, they figure to go up in uh, batting average more than everybody else. And overall, I think you're right. I don't think it's going to be a, a boon for the entire uh, hitting community that, that they're going to all of a sudden see their batting averages go up with any significance, except for that subset of left-handed ground ball hitters. Yeah, and pull hitters, I think, in general will, you know, I mean, it sounds obvious, but, you know, no harm in repeating the obvious. What did you make of the, uh, I saw the other day in a game, 
and I wondered if you saw it, but they, the, the team, it might've been Tampa. It usually is Tampa with these kinds of things. The, they played the left fielder in that spot that used to be the second baseman outstanding in mid in short right field. And they just went without a left fielder entirely. I moved everybody over a little bit to the left, I guess, but uh, it looks like teams are determined when they have line drive pull hitters and maybe even uh, ground ball pull hitters from the left side. They just seem determined not to let them get those cheap hits that uh, fall in because there's nobody there to field them. Uh, the obvious problem with it is if the left-handed hitters go the other way, they can get a triple into left because there's literally nobody there. But I think one thing we've learned over the last few years with the, with the increased shifting is those left-handed hitters either can't or won't try to go the other way and benefit themselves. And maybe the, the idea that you can shift the left fielder into right is going to have to be something that major league baseball next addresses. Well, I'm not buying it. I want to see it work before I'll admit it. As you said, why go to prevent a single when you can allow a triple? Um, plus, a lot of these guys, um, even though they're pull hitters, they have opposite field power. And how many times have you seen the extreme shift? But the center fielder is playing in left center, and the left fielder is playing straightaway left field um, because that's the pattern of the hitter. They do hit the ball the other way in the air. Um, so I, I, I suspect that if Tampa was doing it, they were doing it with an extreme ground ball hitter. I would hope so. Um, but as a general, as a general policy, I'm highly skeptical. Yeah. I imagine that's going to be something that would be really player specific, really hitter specific, and that the pattern would be a guy, a left-handed hitter who just never hits the ball to left field, and then it's incumbent upon him if he doesn't want to keep getting victimized by these kinds of uh, unorthodox defenses. It's going to be incumbent on him to figure out how to hit the ball to left field. Not every time, but just, you know, I, I don't think you'd have to do it more than three or four times and get yourself a walking triple <laughs> into left before right. they uh, before the defenders realize that if if you can do that, you will do it then they can't shift on you anymore and then the problem subsides and you can go back to pulling the ball, which is your natural thing. As I said, though, Gene, just based on what I've seen over the last few years, I just wonder if the a lot of these left-handed hitters who pull the ball a lot are capable of hitting it the other way because they're so locked into that, you know, they groove their swings, they go to drive line or wherever, and they practice doing what they have to, to try to pull the ball and get it in the air. And because that's where the home runs are and home runs are where the money is, but it could be that the defensive shifts, I hope, will encourage those kinds of hitters to, to get back to maybe hitting the ball the opposite way on purpose once in a while, especially when they're just handing it to you. It would be like, being in a football game and there, there being no cornerback on the left side of the, of the offense and just tell your wide receiver, just run, run down the field. There's nobody there. Yeah. I mean, take what they give you. Uh, I, I have never understood why hitters, you know, it's game situational too. You know, there are plenty of times when, you know, there's two outs and nobody on your lefty hitter comes up. Uh, of course, you know, don't try to beat the ship, but, you know, and you're leading off an inning and you're down by two runs, you know, a single is as good as a home run, essentially. So 
you might as well take it. So I, I, I've never understood it, but now it's gone. So. And meanwhile, we we have to figure out how the, all of this affects fantasy, and you have to kind of get down into the weeds on a player by player basis to check their swing or their uh, batted ball profiles and see who might right. benefit from the from the shift. It's been pretty well covered in the fantasy baseball media. So uh, if you're not paying attention, it's probably just your own fault. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from the Athletic, and Gene, your player series will continue with second base which is another position, actually, I find to be fairly high-low split. You put Jazz Chisholm second on your list behind Marcus Semyon, and you said you, and I quote here, see nothing that makes any second baseman a better bet for 2023. Why the uh, upside pick for Chisholm over such established guys as Jose Altuve, who's kind of the consensus first second baseman off the board, and then uh, Atlanta's Ozzie Albies? You've got uh, Jazz Chisholm ahead of both of them. Yeah, now the key word in what you said there was established, and I think that Jazz did establish that he's an elite fantasy player last year. Um, a lot of this is subjective. Um, just from watch, I watched him play a lot last year and was very envious that I did not pull the trigger on him uh, because he seems to me to be, he's subjectively, hes he looks like he's accepted the mantle. He's cocky without being an asshole. Um, but he looks like, yes, I will take the mantle. I can win baseball games like this, you know, with his legs and with his bat, you know, by hitting the ball out of the park, by running. He loves to steal base. So I think that he's a, he has established that, and I think that I would not be at all surprised. Kind of, In fact, I kind of expect him to be a first-rounder next year. Of course, that presupposes that he gets through an entire season without a back problem and some of the other health issues that he's faced are maybe right. a, a bit of a, of a dampening of the excitement. And if you're right. talking but, about a second rounder, Gene, a lot of people don't like to risk, add the risk of injury to the risk of relatively inexperience. Oh, that's true. But I mean, both Albies and, and Altuve also have missed considerable time. So uh, I don't think I think he's even with them in that in that aspect. And Semyon, um, who was the guy that I basically ranked even with him, um, you know, Semyon is a safer pick, and that's why I ranked him higher. Um, but I think that Semyon is probably maxed out. And, uh, not that he's going to decline a lot, but I'll be happy to have him. But I I, I think that. Uh, as a chance to be in the first round next year, Chisholm's got the better chance than than Seth. Yeah, I mean, I can see Jazz Chisholm having a 30-40 type season, which I don't think I can see for Simeon because I I think his stolen bases are capped at a fairly, well, a considerably lower level than Jazz Chisholm if they both peak. Right, exactly. You said in the article, Jeff McNeil is a great pick after 250 players are gone. And arguably, maybe even after 200 picks are gone, depending on what your lineup looks like up to that point. Now, you also acknowledge that McNeil is going to be light in both home runs and stolen bases. So what about him intrigues you to the point where you'd bump him up to the 200th pick? Well, um, he is a great batting average guy. Now, everybody is going to say, well, he had 326 last year, and that's going to come down. And yes. 90% chance that that's true. 
However, he also hit very low in the order at the beginning of last year and only very gradually moved up. Um, I think there's a really good chance this year that he bats second against uh, righties, which he really should. And therefore, his production will increase even as his batting average decreases. But his batting average is going to decrease to, say, 297. Um, that's, you know, basically his level. So so I think that, you know, if your roster is constructed where you have batting average, a batting average need, he's the perfect guy to take that. And he's going behind Arias, who is a very comparable hitter. There's been a bit of helium under Atlanta second baseman Vaughn Grissom, who will start the season and very quickly also qualify at shortstop. But you said you're comfortable with him as a 12th rounder. Why the reticence to include him at the rate he's going now, which is more like 10th round? Well, because he kind of disappeared at the end of last year. I mean, I, I know the Braves have handed him the shortstop job. Uh, we only got three of plate appearances in the, in the postseason. He was struck out all three times. I mean, he did kind of decline. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, he, he was in the major leagues at age 21 and he did really well and he did that. He's going to get the quality you know, the shortstop qualification too. Um, but I just think that there's a, a good chance that he's a good player, um, but not not an emerging superstar, at least not yet. Moving on to the shortstop position, Gene, you called Texas shortstop Corey Seager low-hanging fruit at 67 average draft position. Why? Well, because I think he's one of the best hitters in the game, and I, it stunned me that he hit 245 last year. But on the other hand, I mean, his strikeouts are 15%, and he had an easy career high of 13 home runs, um, which was gr- which is great, in, uh, especially when the ball is supposed to be better than it was. Uh, he's another guy who was uh, really hurt by the shift last year. Um, so I think this year, uh, you know, him ascending to the two, 290 to 300 range with 30 home runs is uh, uh, almost automatic. You said uh, Milwaukee's Willie Adamas is very much worth considering as an elite shortstop. So I guess two questions. What does elite mean as far as you're concerned, and what are you seeing about that's elite about a 238 hitter from last year? Well, actually, Patrick, Patrick, I said an elite middle infielder. Um, I think that he's a fallback at shortstop, but as a fallback, he's probably going to beat some guys that went ahead of him. Uh, now, he's another guy who had a really artificially low batting average last year. Um and it was completely just a Babbitt thing. I mean, even at, it was Babbitt, I think, it was 278 last year. And even after that, his career Babbitt is 325. So if that reverts, then he's hitting in the high 270s. And he's got a little speed, and he's got the great power, and he's in a decent lineup in a prominent spot. So I think he's, uh, he's another guy that, you know, if you don't get one of the big guys at shortstop, hey, fine, I'll take Adonis. Yeah, I thought I think Willie Adamas is going to be a, a really terrific guy to have on your roster, especially uh, at the place he's going. Although I have noticed him sneaking up a little bit lately, and I think that might be in part because people 
as we talked about earlier, on a positional basis, you're in your draft, all of a sudden you start seeing the shortstops disappearing from the board. You might say, you know, if I don't get Adamas, maybe I'm moving down to somebody I like a lot less and maybe promoting him a round or two just to be on the safe side. Uh, last season, Gene, in an early season appearance on Baseball HQ Radio, you were all over Jorge Mateo as a weird kind of power speed guy with essentially nothing else to offer in the other three categories, but a lot to offer in the speed department especially, and he panned out. He led Major League Baseball in steals, I believe, with 35 and threw in 13 home runs, which ain't nothing for a guy that you're getting that late in the draft. But, of course, he only hit 221. You still sound positive on Jorge Mateo. What do you think uh, he has going for him in 2023? I've read... For instance, uh, some talk that uh, Baltimore is looking to move on to one of their prospects, and they have a few. Well, I don't think it's going to happen this year, um, mainly because he's a really good fielder at shortstop. Um, I think they're going to do their damnedest to keep him in the lineup, and the pitchers are going to, if not insist on it, certainly lobby for it. Um, I think that he's a, you know, he's not a good hitter, but he's a good mistake hitter, um, which is not nothing, and it, it's. It puts a floor under him. Now, maybe it's wishful thinking to think that he can hit 240, uh, but it doesn't seem wishful thinking to me that anybody can hit 240 who's established himself in the major leagues. And you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that he's uh, that he's a disaster with the bat, and and therefore he's gonna he's gonna do his stolen bases and with the you know hit a home run every two weeks or so. And and I think that that's again a fallback at, at shortstop, but from a from a lineup construction point point of view, might be uh, might be really good, you know, given given where he's typically going, which is, I mean, after the tenth round, right? You know, sometimes even down to the fifteenth. Yeah, I think it's usually around there, the fifteenth round, sixteenth round, and. Uh, I think most fantasy managers are looking at Jorge Mateo as strictly a stolen base play. But I'm just looking at his record from last year. He had 63 runs scored and 50 RBIs, and that's from like the ninth spot in the batting order, usually the eighth or ninth spot in the batting order. You know, it's not uh, 95-95, but for a low-cost player like that, 113 combined runs produced uh, in that nine spot with 35 bags, all of a sudden, I mean, I think Jorge Mateo is worth something like $24, $25 in fantasy terms, according to Baseball HQ's valuations last year. And I suspect he was probably in that same value range in all the other measuring uh, systems. I think maybe Jorge Mateo might be a, a steal again this year. You're going to have to do something about the batting average, but he hit 247 in 2021 in uh, right. only in 200 plate appearances. But, you know, once you show a skill, you own it kind of thing. And maybe this is a, a case where you might want to promote Jorge Mateo on your list if you're thinking you're going to grab him in round 15 again this year because it uh, could be somebody in your league is going to say, I could use 35 bags. And with the changes in the st- in the bags themselves and the other uh, – things that have changed in the rules to promote stolen bases, he could steal 50 bags because uh, depending on how you feel about that, and I guess I'll ask you how you feel about it, there's a school of thought that says that the rule changes as far as stolen bases go will be a rising tide that lifts all boats more or less equally, which means that doesn't help anybody particularly. 
But then there's another school of thought that says that the top guys are going to go just completely crazy and that a guy like Mateo at 35 bags might end up with 60 this year. And then there's the third school of thought, which says that the top guys aren't going to move, but all the 10 and 15 bag guys are going to climb up. What do you think is likeliest to happen as far as stolen bases go, given the rules changes? Well, first of all, I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm now almost sure that there are going to be more stolen bases across the board this year. And that's because the public wants it. And even the managers who are stingy with the stolen bases are not going to go against their, uh, are not going to go against the public. Um, so I think that definitely stolen bases will be up. Now, the, uh, specifically to, uh, to Mateo, also remember that the Orioles last year at the beginning of the season had a bad, bad lineup. And now they have a pretty good lineup. So his run scored should come up this year, um, even if he still bats ninth, which I still expect him to do. Um, I, the only thing that people should realize and should be in the back of our minds is that there's a lot of room for more stolen base attempts in baseball. You know, we're old guys. We remember when 10 guys stole 40 bases a year and when 60 stolen bases did not even come close to leading the league. So this should at least be in the back of our mind, and it wouldn't surprise me at all to see, you know, three or four guys stealing 50 bases. The other thing, one other thing is that uh, with these pizza box bags, it's much easier to reach the back. It's that much further to the back of the bag, and I assume that everybody's going to be sliding towards the back of the bag. Um, not only on stolen base attempts, but on pickoff attempts. And that's another aspect to, the, to this, is that I think you're going to see very few times when a pitcher throws over to first base more than once. Uh, because if he throws over twice and doesn't get the guy on the second time, the guy basically got a free bag. Um, so I think what you might see is guys taking a really big but one-way lead on the first, you know, at the beginning of an at-bat, tempting the pitcher to throw over, knowing that he's not going to be running. The batter knows, you know, the runner knows he's not going to be running. And the pitcher doesn't get him, and therefore he can take that big a lead second time, and this time go. Um, we'll see how it works out. It's just a thought. Yeah, and to be clear, the the changed rule is if the th it's the third pickoff, that becomes uh, if it's unsuccessful, that becomes a balk. But I think your point is that if he uh, misses on the second try, then the guy can basically take a twenty-five foot lead, and right. you know right. he can still try to pick him off. But it becomes a very uh, a different risk-benefit kind of calculation to have to make. Uh, Absolutely, and that yeah, and that's why I say I don't think you're going to see. It's going to be rare to see two pickoff throws to first base. We'll see. Well, that's, that would be good because it's probably the most boring play in, in baseball, especially since so many times, as we've all come to realize, the pitcher is not intending to get the guy out. He's just lobbing the ball over there as a way to remind the base runner that, hey, I know you're there, you know, I'm keeping an eye on you, 
but it uh, really did slow the game down with very little. I mean, you, you'd see a pickoff, what, once every three or four games kind of thing, maybe even less frequently than that. And, and it was because the pitcher was literally not trying to pick the guy off. He's just trying to make some kind of a theatrical point, I think. As last shortstop I'd like to talk to you about, Gene, is O'Neill Cruz. And boy, oh boy, there's a ton of potential here. There's also some awards on the profile. You have his ideal draft slot at pick 75, which would put him somewhere around the end of the fifth. That's where I got him in TGFBI. Why do you think that pick 75-ish is about right for O'Neill Cruz? Because he's he's so tall. He's got a big strike zone. And he does not, he has not mastered it yet. Um, so it's a question of, when that happened, it probably will happen in time. But to bet on it this year, uh, anything over seventy-five seems to be a little risky. I mean, I think seventy-five is just about where he should go because uh, he does have the. I mean, he might have the best power-speed combination. Uh, I mean, certainly hitting the ball hard and and running fast. I mean, he's right up there with you know Acuna and Julio Rodriguez. Uh, it's just a question of his plate discipline. And um, let's watch that in March. You know, I don't think the spring training stats mean anything yet, but now they're going to start to mean something. So look at his strikeout to walks, and then you might tweak him up or down based on that. Because uh, if he does conquer the strike zone problem, he's a guy like Chisholm who could go in the first round next year. Um, so uh, I think 75 is just about the over-under point for him. Yeah, if he has a good spring as we get towards opening day, I bet that 75th spot starts to climb. But if he has a poor spring and maybe um, his slot will drop a little bit, uh, I was looking at his record, 360 plate appearances last year, 17 home runs. So he's probably at 25, 27 home run pace, something like that. Just 10 stolen bases, but boy, if you if you prorate out O'Neill Cruz's uh, first go-round in the big leagues. Uh, it looks like there's a lot of potential here. And in my TGFBI draft, Gene, I kind of thought I'm just going to take those kind of chances because really, especially in the overall sense, you're not going to win if you play it safe at, at every pick. I think you, you want to try to play it safe and pick one, maybe pick two. But after that, I think if you think there's the potential for a guy to have a big season, I think you have to jump on it and from the time I made the pick in the third round in uh, TGFBI, I took uh, um, Dalton Varsho because I was worried about the catcher thing. And as soon as I clicked it, I thought, damn it, I should have taken Jazz Chisholm, who went two picks later because I was playing safe with Dalton Varsho, I think, because, you know, at catcher and the, and the possibility of some bags and some home runs and stuff like that. But gosh, you don't win leagues playing like that. I think you have to go with the guy who could go 40-40 because if he does, then you are going to win your league or you're certainly going to do a lot better. Right. The only question with Cruz is, I mean, from what I was saying, you know, Adamas, um, Wanda Franco, and Tim Anderson were going after Cruz. So I thought from, and I was thinking that if I let Cruz go, you know, if somebody takes Cruz, I still have a pretty good chance to get one of those other three guys later and use that spot to fill another position. Uh, just a roster construction thing. Uh, you know, we'll see how it works out. You, you could be right. You know, it's funny when you were saying that uh, 
you can't win by playing safe. The contrarian in me wonders, could you actually win if you played it safe at every single position? But the guys that you played it safe with were did better, you know, exceeded expectations. I guess that could happen. I wouldn't bet on it, though. No, I wouldn't bet on it either because uh, this is something else that you, you told me uh, years ago on Baseball HQ Radio when we were talking about daily games, and that is whatever possibilities you're entertaining about your roster, you have to start saying, okay, even if it's a 90% possibility, if you take 90% and then 90% of that, 90% of that, all the way down your 14 roster slots, your chances that they all hit is, what, 1% or half of 1%? Because exactly. the uh, the 10% miss rate keeps compounding. Right. That's right. Gene McCaffrey is a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic, and he'll be right back with part two of our feature expert interview. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our skills columns, analyst Matt Cedarholm looks at relief pitchers in unsettled bullpens. In facts and flukes performance validation, Analyst Robert Berger looks at five American League players, including Marcus Semyon, Carlos Estevez, and Max Kepler. And in our skills columns, the Buyer's Guide writers Stephen Nickrand and Doug Dennis look at some overvalued hitters, starters, and relievers. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Facts and flukes performance valuation, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, pitchers, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, and injury analysis in the big hurt. As well, we have fantasy baseball research and all kinds of tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. I mentioned uh, O'Neill Cruz's ideal pick at number 75, a point above which you say you stop being interested in outfielder Corbin Carroll. Let's open our outfield discussion by talking about Corbin Carroll. What's your concern with him? Because he's going above pick 75 so far in the drafts I've been in. Yeah, um, I think it's a little too high because um, his minor league record is fantastic. But anybody with that with so few at-bats in the major leagues has disappointment potential. And even a little bit of disaster potential. I don't think it's going to happen, of course, with Carroll because he's got the five-cat potential. Um, but I do think it's possible that he turns out to be only a, a really good platoon player. His minor league record is not that different from Jock Peterson's. Um, so I think caution is advised and uh, and I think he's in the helium camp now. Not that I don't like him, just that I, uh, uh, the, the risk, you're kind of, you're, you're hoping that he's going to go, what, 25 40, but you're paying for him to go 25 25. And so there's no, there's no real profit potential. Yeah, especially when you look at his record over the last, since 2019, when he started in rookie ball. 
the the maximum plate appearances he's put together is 277 in a season. I, I think there's a real problem here with uh, the possibility of injury. And then in some of those years, I mean, he had 16 stolen bases in rookie ball on 137 plate appearances. And you look at that and you go, holy smoly, you know, 137 times four roughly to get a full season. You're talking about 65 bags, but that's in rookie ball. When he got to the big leagues, he stole two bases in 115 plate appearances. And I think this is a, a situation where the narrative is getting way out of head of where a reasonable expectation is, should be falling. Yeah, I mean, this is, and this happens every year. Um, and uh, we were well advised over the years to back off when it happens, because it does not play out well more often than it does. Um, so let the hype train roll. I, I'm going to, I'm backing off when, once it gets, you know, over, over 75, which, so basically now we're not going to get them. That's all there is to it. You know, I, I pay, I'll go to twenty twenty one dollars on him in, in an NL league. That's a lot of money to me um, in an auction, but I bet it doesn't get him. No, I bet you're right. And if you think you're going to snag him in the sixth or seventh round, which is kind of where I had him valued, uh, I mean, I I knew I was when I put him into that tier. I just said to myself, "There's absolutely no chance you're going to get him." And sure enough, in uh, I've been in three drafts, and he's gone in the third round all three times. And I I just think that's expecting too much. Something that uh, you, you've talked about here and elsewhere is the need to understand what the value is and what the possibility of achieving the value is. And you want to buy the ceiling. You don't, I mean, you want to buy the floor, not the ceiling. And, uh, and that right. way benefit from the ceiling. Should you happen to get a guy who, uh, you priced at the floor? Yep. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's still a chance that he's going to be a platoon player. So, you know, until he's shown that that's not true, he's going too high for among outfielders and overall, you said your top pick this year, as you said at the start of the, uh, the discussion, uh, Julio Rodriguez of Seattle. And of course, we all know he's terrific. But how concerned are you about a guy? He's a second year player, fairly young, and he's already missed some significant time with back problems. And you look at guys like Turner and Judge and Jose Ramirez and Acuna, of course, had the knee injury. But how concerned are you that a guy at a young age having back problems is a, a problem because uh, he's a tall, lanky guy? Reminds me of uh, Eric Davis of the Cincinnati Reds back in the right. back in the day, and he had back trouble as well. So uh, I just wonder if this guy is being overpromoted again on the on the ceiling rather than considering the possible floor that you know he might only play 115 games. Well. It's a point. Um, I mean, Judge is not without injury risk. Akut is not without injury. Hell, any of them could get hurt. Um, I mean, more, my recommendation is more on the basis of this guy is a superstar. Um, there's nothing on the field that he can't do. Um, he could lead, you know, all those guys, all those top five guys. He's got a chance to beat them all in every category, except he won't be judging home runs or probably RBIs, but, you know, when it comes to uh, established ability and potential to exceed that ability, he's got as much as anybody. I mean, I, I did switch off him as the number one pick because, to me, the calls for 
judges home run regression are, are basically ridiculous. Um, and for home runs are four category events and he's the clear favorite to lead major league baseball in home runs. So I think that if you're not going to take a pitcher there and there's no reason to this year, that you should take the home run guy, get the, get the maximum four cats. And, and he judge even stole some bases and I think that will continue. So I, uh, I, I've elevated judge to one and Rodriguez to number two. And of course, there's nothing wrong with Acuna. Acuna could be the top pick next year every bit as easily as one out. I really like Aaron Judge for that same reason. I had a chance to draft him, and I actually took uh, Trey Turner instead again because of the position worries. But in hindsight, I think I should have taken Aaron Judge. Uh, you called Jordan Alvarez bankable across four categories, but that was before he had this hand issue that's been plaguing him all spring. How has the injury caused you to reassess since you wrote that piece uh, a little while ago? Uh, not yet. I haven't reassessed yet. The Astros don't seem to be concerned, so I'm not concerned until they are. Um, reserving the reserving the right to to you know if it if it gets any worse, you know if he's still not he's supposed to play in the next few days. You know if he gets keeps getting pushed back, then it'll become a concern for me. But it's not yet. You said you expect Kyle Schwarber to earn his fourth-round ADP despite his streakiness, and we talked about streaky players like him. Uh, what do you like about Schwarber that gives you the confidence to say a fourth-round ADP works? Because last year was one of his bad years, and he had a pretty darn good year. Um, also, he was also a, a, a shift guy and should get I – mean, he, he lost 23 hits to the shift last year. Um, give him 23 hits and all of a sudden he's a monster. I mean, he had a 10 stolen bases and he was only caught once. Um, so, I mean, you got to figure that that's at least mostly going to repeat. So he's not a, you know, he's not a slew-footed slugger. Um, and, you know, I think he's going to bat second this year, which will improve his RBIs. Even though he drove in, he had 94 RBIs last year and he had batted lead off almost all the time. That's amazing. And great. 100 RBIs as well. And as you said, if you give him back 25 hits on outs, you know some of them are going to produce some runs. Uh, he's going to score some runs as a result. That's It's a really interesting thing. At 240 Babbitt last year, which is really low, is 306 the year before for him. And I know that hitters established right. their own level. But if you look back over his career in Chicago, 276, 288, 293, I mean, he's not going to have a 310 Babbitt because he's not going to get as many leg hits as a lot of guys, but he certainly going, should improve that 240 mark, especially because of the shift. I, I think uh, Kyle Schwarber maybe could be a third-round pick, and I think at the end of the year when we taught up all the valuations, I think it wouldn't surprise me to see him flirting with the uh, you know top 15 in all of baseball. Uh, finally, Gene, I grabbed Cleveland outfielder Oscar Gonzalez in the 14th round of TGFBI. I thought he was a good value there because uh, he was right around on our sheet. Alex Verdugo, Seth Brown, Andrew Benintendi, guys like that. What do you think of Oscar Gonzalez? Uh, well, I got him at the end of the 12th round, so that tells you what I think of it. Um, I think he did real well to do that. Um, I particularly like about him. Now, I, I mean, he's a guy, he's a free swinger. And so, you know, people are going to say, well, the pitchers are going to get wise to him. And throw him. But the thing is, 
because he was pitchers. When pitchers try to get get batters to chase, they try to do it mostly down and away, and he was fantastic down and away. Now up and in was another story. Uh, well, we'll see how that goes. But um, if he only, you know, a free swinger is only striking out nineteen and a half percent as a rookie. That's really something to grow on, and I think that put the floor under him. So I think he's a fine pick. Uh, he, you know, I mean, I'm happy. Was happy to get him at the, at the end of the twelfth round, and so I think he did really well. Yeah, I've got high hopes for Oscar Gonzalez. I don't think he's going to be a, a super producer, but I could see you know twenty home runs. I don't think he's going to be a, a real threat on a, as a base guy, as a stolen base guy, but I think the rest of his game is going to be worthwhile, especially at that relatively low level. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. And Gene, you're going to be kicking off our new setup of Boons and Banes. It seems like we change this constantly, but it's actually not so true. Um Instead of, I think we've been doing American League and National League. We're kind of dropping that because it's not germane to a lot of uh, to a lot of our listeners who don't play in in split leagues like that. So, how about we uh, do instead early rounds, mid rounds, late rounds, and and uh, I know it's a bit of extra work, but what the heck, I'm not paying. Okay. <laughs> so let's start with the Boons uh, in the early rounds. Who's a batter you like? Well, we talked about Chisholm, and but the other guy that I like is Vladdy. A um, little bit of a down year. Another guy who should benefit some from uh, lack of shifting. Um, then he's right back. He's a, he's a prideful guy. He wants to he wants to have people to think that he's the best hitter in the game, which he might be. Um, so I think his reasonable expectation that he that he's you know thirty five home runs, three hundred and you know, 100, 100 easy. So, you know, if he's going to the end of the first round, I think that's uh, that's a great place to, a good reason to pick there. Yeah, and boy, oh boy, uh, the Blue Jays, I know it's spring training and you're seeing a lot of second-rate pitchers, but gosh, every time I look, they seem to be putting 16 runs on the board. Yeah, they're a good hitting club. In the middle rounds, who's a batter who could be a boon? Uh, First, Brandon Lau. Uh, he's healthy, he's playing, he's one year removed from 39 home runs. Uh, I think he's a tremendous value there, and he's almost a, I mean, I got him at the beginning of the 15th round, and I thought that was, I don't know, uh, do they know something I don't? That was my thinking at the time. And then another guy who uh, who was moved up in my calculation since I wrote is Tyler Stevenson on, on Cincinnati. Um, because he's going to DH, um, he'll probably play some first base. So that gets him up to, he should be well over 500, he's batting second, which he always should have been doing. Um, so I think he's a guy, he's a real target. You know, at the end of the catcher run, which is where he's going, um, he's a great guy where you, you might not give up anything. And uh, you look at his record, he's done nothing but hit. So, uh I think he's a great value. You mentioned that a couple of times in your uh, catcher article. It be, be cognizant of the fact that some of these catchers are going to get a lot of plate appearances at other positions, including DH, and that raises their value because the knock-on catchers is typically, yeah, sure he's a good hitter, but he only gets 425 plate appearances. But if he gets another 125 plate appearances at other places on the diamond, 
gosh, in addition to the added uh, plate appearances, a little bit of positional flexibility sometimes, although usually they're never as valuable elsewhere as they are a catcher. Uh, how about in the late rounds, who's a boon batter? Uh, I like the Michael Massey on the, on the Royals. I think he's a he's not a uh, I mean maybe minor star potential across the board kind of guy. Not a not especially outstanding at any one thing, but good at everything. Um, he's just a baseball player, uh, good fielder. Uh, he's going to help his team win. Uh, you know, as a late guy, um, he's going as a reserve pick, and I think he's a fantastic reserve pick. Um, because he's not, he, he's a great hole filler, put it that way, with with the potential to to be more than that. Um, and then another guy is uh, James Altman on the Dodgers. Um, I don't know if he's going to make the team. Um, the, the word is that Jason Hayward is back, but I just looked at Jason Hayward. He's down to 192 in the spring, despite all this talk about uh, he working swing with Freddie Freeman. I know that Dave Roberts has endorsed um, Hayward, but let's see how long that lasts. Um, Alvin is a five-cat guy, and he's a center fielder, and the Dodgers desperately need a center fielder. So as a reserve pick, which again, and that's where Alvin's going, uh, great pick. I like James Altman too, and I think the question when you're talking about Hayward is his calling card has really been outfield defense, and uh you know, he's not a spring chicken anymore, and I wonder if the, if that declines a little bit and his hitting continues to be as relatively anemic as it has been over the last couple of years, I think James Outman could sneak in there because I don't think Trace Thompson is the long-term solution for them in center field nope. either. Uh, let's go to the pitchers. How about an early-round pitcher that you like as a boon? Uh, Justin Verlander. Uh, people are fearing for his age. Um, I see nothing to nothing to fear. I mean, what's going to change in six months? The velocity is there. He's in the pitcher park. Good team. Um, you know, he, he's as good a bet as anybody, really. Um, so when the, when the pitchers start to go, he seems to be falling a little bit. So I, he's a great he's a great guy to let the, let him run and let the run go on and then take him at the end of the run and, um, and benefit. I read somewhere, and I'm sorry I don't remember where because I'd like to give credit, but whoever the, was writing about Justin Verlander made a point about the fact that he missed an entire year recovering from Tommy John might be a great thing for him in the latter part of his career because he didn't pitch for a year, and all the rest of him got a, a nice year-long rest the way that, uh, gosh, who was the, the football player in Seattle? who Marshawn Lynch took a year off because he said, this is just too hard. And he came back and he was terrific. And I wonder if there's uh, an opportunity for some research to say, do these guys who come back from Tommy John, are they really effective that first year back, that second year back? And how f quickly does it fall off? Because I can see a 37-year-old guy just needing a year off to, to rest, not just his arm, not just his elbow, but gosh, your lower half, which is where all your power comes from, that needs a rest. You know, you've been doing really hard work for a really long time, starting in the minor leagues, starting in high school, for that matter, and uh, I wonder if, if a guy like Verlander has hidden value by the fact that he had basically a year-long vacation. Yeah, that's a good point, I and mean, I hadn't thought about it, but uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Last year, you may remember, that Verlander was also undervalued because he was coming back from Tommy John's surgery. Oh, you know, uh, 
Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know about the. I th- I think the proof has been well established that pitchers coming back from Tommy John are not automatically weak or suspect. That they really come back just as good as they ever were, sure. if if they've done all the you know the rehab and all that kind of stuff. Which uh, you know a guy making thirty million dollars a year probably has a great incentive to get as many years out of it as he possibly can. Uh, in the middle rounds, Gene, who's a pitcher you think is a boon? Uh, I like Alexis Diaz, the closer on the Reds. Uh, I don't think the Reds are going to be that bad this year. Looks like they have two good starting pitchers, and any team that has two good starting pitchers is not going to lose 100 games. Um, so that really eliminates the concern about enough enough wins. I think if you're desperate, he could be a number one closer and it's really ex number two closer if you want to if you want to. Uh, play it safe with save this year or try to play it safe never worked but not never well no, I shouldn't say never never Sometimes. say never yeah never say. no I've had several years where I've played it safe with closers then it has worked out all year and I think he's a prime candidate for uh, for uh, for a good total of saves that he's a really good pitcher right Seems to be sneaking up uh, in the few drafts that I've done. He started off sort of 14th round, and the last time I, I was in a draft, it was more like 12th round. So I think the news is getting out that uh, Alexis Diaz is not sneaking through to the later rounds the way we might expect. Uh, speaking of the later rounds, who's a pitcher in the late rounds you think could be a boon? Uh, always tough to call these guys. I think maybe Ted to Maeda. Um, you know, it's Given his limitations, not a big strikeout guy, but um, he's always been a good pitcher. And I think when you're down at that point of the draft, you just want a guy who's basically a good pitcher, decent team. Um, uh, you know, he doesn't have a high ceiling, but he's got a floor. So he's a guy that I'm comfortable with as, you know, my number six and number seven starter. Always been a good strikeout guy. Uh, let's go over to the Banes now. In the early rounds, who's a batter, who's a Bane? I guess what we're saying is here a guy you don't want at the ADP. Uh, two guys. Um, unfortunately, I, one of them is your your boy, Varsho. Um, not because I fear for his ability, but I fear for his uh, plate appearances against, le- against left-handed pitching. Be- just because that team is so good, um, I don't think he's going to bat up at the top of the order on the way he did in Arizona. The team is too good for it. Uh, maybe he will against righties. In that case, I, might move, I will be wrong. Um, again, it's not that I don't like him as a player. Um, I just think that he's going a little too soon. I think people are overpaying for the stolen bases um, at the catcher position. Um, well, we'll see. And the other guy is Michael Harris. Again, not because I think he's bad. But I think a year of retrenchment uh, is more likely than than a year of advance. He's kind of finished slowly last year, and that always makes me, you know, take you know, uh, give a second year player take him down one. In the middle rounds, who do you think is a batter who could be a bane? Well, I mean, at the at the risk of you know beating a, a dead horse and stating the obvious is. Javier Baez, I, I mean, I just think he's, he hasn't gone anywhere in his whole career. He's still swinging crap. Um, and I expect that to continue, and I, I'm i staying as far away from him as I can. The other guy, for the reasons we talked about, uh, with the street slump, is Eugenio Suarez. Now, this should be a down year for him, and this is a guy 
who hit 199 for 20 and 21 combined. Um, I think that's what he's going to do this year. Um, he'll still hit his 30 home runs, um, but there's no way he should be batting in the middle of the order, and I doubt he will be for very long. So, Juarez. In the late rounds, how about a batter, Bain? Uh, two guys who I think are well over the hill, Charlie Blackman and Chris Taylor. Uh, Chris Taylor's going to get a lot of playing time this year, and it would not surprise me at all to see him completely fall on his face. But, you know, he had 35% strikeouts last year. Uh, I think he's clearly done. I think the same is true with Blackman. Although in Blackman's case, if he wanted to, I think he could poke the ball around Coors Field and hit 300 without much power. But it doesn't look like that's his approach. It looks like he's still trying to muscle up, and so I expect the strikeout to go up. Charlie Blackman used to steal a lot of bases. He's a little long in the tooth for that, but I wonder if guys like him who have a track record of being pretty good at, at stealing bases uh, in the past might be a little more tempted or the manager might be a little more tempted to give him the green light just because uh, theoretically anyway, it should be easier to steal bases with the shorter base path. I, I think that's something that's going to be interesting. I'm not going to bet on it. Uh, er, er, finally, how about the uh, early rounds, a pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, early round pitcher to be a bane. Well, I mean, there's DeGrom. I mean, we know, well, we know the story on him. But the guy that I'm focusing on is Sandy Alcantara. Um, not because I don't think he's a good pitcher. I think he's a really good pitcher. But he's a guy that he's an extreme ground ball pitcher um, who has a bad infield this year at all four positions. And also, another thing is he's really easy to run on. And I think that if there's stolen bases, you know, if they increase as we expect, they're going to begin with the ground ball pitchers who are easy to run on. Um, it's not that I think that Akatar is going to be bad, but I think that he's overpriced in the second round. I'm going to lay off him this year and hope to get him next year in the fifth when they have a better interest. It's interesting, too, those two factors, uh, being easy to run on and getting a lot more ground balls into an infield that isn't very defensively stout and not being able to shift, they kind of compound, right? I mean, you get more base runners as a result of the fir- of the second and more stolen bases as a result of the first, which moves guys along, and there goes the ERA up. I think I think you're right about Sandy Alcantara. I want no part of him this year just for those reasons. that He went in the second round in all three of the drafts that I've drafted in so far. And I don't see it. i got to be honest. I don't see it. Uh, how about a middle rounds pitcher who could be a bane? This guy, uh, Alex Lang on, on the Tigers, I don't think he's really, his control is terrible and it was worse as he went along last year. I don't think he's going to hold his job. As for a starting pitcher, uh, 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 Pablo Lopez on, on Minnesota, um, he's a pretty good pitcher. Um, but he's nothing special, and I think he's out of Florida. Um, it's not as good a place to, to pitch, so I mean, I expect him to be a decent pitcher, to, you know, 4.0, 1.25, 1. 1.27, like that. Uh, but that's a little, you know, that's a guy you want in the late rounds, if at all. And finally, how about a late round pitcher, Bain? Well, they're all, all pitchers in the late rounds are potential banes, but one guy that I just don't see uh, is McKenzie Gore. 
Um, he, he just hasn't shown any ability to get hitters out. And um, again, his control was, you know, he, he went out, he was down last year, but in his last, uh, in his last 28 innings pitch, he walked 23 batters. And I am just in with a 10 foot pole, I would say. Gene McCaffrey's Boons of Vladimir Guerrero of Toronto, Brandon Lau of Tampa, Tyler Stevenson of Cincinnati, Michael Massey in Kansas City, and James Outman of the Dodgers. On the pitching side, his Boons, uh, Justin Verlander of the Mets, Alexis Diaz of Cincinnati, Kenta Maeda of Minnesota. Over to the Baines in the early rounds, Dalton Varsho of Toronto, Michael Harris of Atlanta. In the middle rounds, Javier Baez of Detroit, Eugenio Suarez of Seattle. And in the late rounds, Charlie Blackman of Colorado, Chris Taylor of the Dodgers. And the pitcher Baines in the early rounds, Sandy Alcantara of Miami. In the middle rounds, Alex Lang of Detroit, Pablo Lopez of Minnesota. And in the late rounds, Mackenzie Gore of Washington. Gosh, Gene, time flies. This was terrific, as it always is. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. I recommend, again, uh, go go to The Athletic and read up on everything that Gene has written. Uh, Gene, you didn't do any pitchers. Uh, do you have any uh, wisdom on that score before we go? Um, you know, I wish I did. Um, I, I'll tell you one thing that, that surprises me is that the elite closers continue to go so high. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. We talked about it last year um, with Hader and, and Hendricks, and it, it didn't really work last year, especially given the opportunity cost. Um, and yet, people are doing it, continuing to do it this year. Uh, it kind of surprises me. Um, as far as starting pitchers concerned, I'm happy that none of them are going in the first round and a few in the second. So that I mean, there's such a great long tier of pitchers who are not considered quite elite but are still really good there's a lot of them and so I'm, I'm very happy about that that they're you could get a couple of legit aces you know third to fifth round um, and even later and, and I think that's great I think it is too I'm drafting in the Raz Slam points draft right now and of course the first thing I do when I'm in that style of draft is I stack rank everybody get the best projections I can find and calculate what the projected points are for everybody and there's just a huge string of pitchers after those first few guys there's oh gosh I think it was 15 or 18 pitchers who were all upper tier pitchers and they're not going anywhere near the top rounds a lot of them are going fifth sixth seventh rounds and by points they're just as good as uh, the guys who are going three rounds earlier. Now, I know points doesn't necessarily translate to the regular fantasy categories, uh, ERA and WHIP and so forth, and, but I think it's close enough. You know, the, the points are designed to re- kind of reflect those categories, and I think that when you look at a guy who's maybe projected for 450 scoring points and there's a guy who's projected for 500, and the guy at 450 is five rounds later. I think that just is a bargain waiting to be seized. And and when you throw in the volatility that affects the pitching ranks in general, I, I think that's even more of an argument this year anyway to hold off on the pitchers in the early going unless you really have a chance, maybe Cole, maybe uh, guys like that, even Spencer Strider I like. But it, otherwise, I, I think the play is 
go heavy on your hitting in the first few rounds because there's plenty of pitching to be had. Absolutely, and on good teams too. And that's you know always a consideration. You know, because we're not supposed to chase wins, but they are a category. And uh, you know, and even I hesitate because nobody's an innings eater this year. But relatively speaking, there there could be innings eaters, and that's all we care about. So. You know, there's plenty of guys like that, you know, up and down. And I keep thinking that Ron Shannon must be in his glory with Babs because, you know, the skills the skills of the pitchers in the seventh round are equal to the, some of the guys in the second round. And, hey, that's what we live for, right? It is indeed. That's where the bargains are, and uh, the bargains are where the championships are won, I think. Uh, Gene, remind us where our listeners can keep up with your work. Uh, just the athletic.com. I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it. Uh, uh, so keep an eye on the athletic. I'll be erratic, but I will be putting up stuff. Feel free to comment. I really appreciate it when, uh, when I get intelligent comments from, uh, from readers. And so please feel free and feel free to tell me where I'm wrong, uh, before it's too late. Um, you know, I still have my main event draft. And among us all, we could probably get something right that we might have gotten wrong without it. Well said. And take that, Elon Musk. Gene, thanks a million again. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I hope we run into each other a little more frequently than we have the last couple of years. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and I'll talk to you soon. You too, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. It was always a great pleasure. Gene McCaffrey is a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy and a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Talking with Gene is always one of my favorite ways to spend some time, and I was glad to hear he's aiming to go to First Pitch Arizona this year. Another reason for everybody else to go to First Pitch Arizona this year. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Pocket Cast, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you, well, leave Baseball HQ a good review and a rating. It does help us find new listeners and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with another Friday full edition featuring an expert guest interview with Peter Kreitzer of Rotoman's Guide at Substack. And we'll have news reports from Chris Olson, a Playing Time Today reporter at BaseballHQ.com. That's coming up on Friday on another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.